0: Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright, the right partner. <laughs> Do you see what I did there? I, I see what you did there, yes. Awesome. Today we are talking about <laughs> Minute 31, which begins with Steve showing his ineptitude in talking to a woman, and ends with specialists in rare time pieces. Joining us on the show today and all week, we have Matthew Costello, author of several works on politics and superheroes, including Secret Identity Crisis, Comic Books, and the Unmasking of Cold War America. Welcome to the show, Matthew.
1: Welcome. Thanks so much.
0: Glad to be here. Uh, we are thrilled to have you uh, on the show and uh, on for this particular movie and talking about uh, kind of these minutes. It's going to be kind of a, a fun week of stuff that we're going to be chatting about. We're starting here in the car. Again, we're back in the car. Um, As a reminder, this is, uh, you know, we started in, again, the filming location, Manchester's Northern Quarter on Dale Street. And they have just been kind of driving the same few blocks over and over through this entire scene. Uh, it, It is what it is. We're in a 1939 Buick special. And we didn't mention this last week, but the song playing is I'll Remember April by Woody Herman and his orchestra, which was a hit at the time. Um, so let's uh, kind of settle in on to where we're kind of coming back into the middle of this conversation between Peggy and Steve. And uh, I, well, let's just kind of start there. Uh, Matthew, what are your thoughts on kind of the way that this conversation plays out?
2: Um, I actually really like this conversation. I like the way it, it sort of cements what's going to become the, the Steve and Peggy dynamic, um, where where we actually start to see her begin to develop that respect for him that's going to become love, largely through his ineptitude at this whole conversation. (laughs) He cannot talk to a woman, right? Fame beautiful yeah army don't uh, god what am i saying um and there's the look on her face like you really don't have a clue um outwell does these wonderful reaction shots to this whole film and that's just one of the great ones right there um and then it turns into this question you must have danced and then we get the whole dancing this becomes a whole metaphor for their relationship from here all the way through to end game and so this really sets it up very very well
0: Now, I've got a question for you, and Pete's going to, I'm sure, chime in here because Pete's had this uh, debate with himself and uh, previous guests about what is Peggy thinking at this point? Is she falling for this guy or is she at this point just seeing this person as this guy is the perfect subject for this thing we're about to do? Where do you sit on this line here?
2: I think this is the moment where she starts to develop something more than this is the perfect guy for this whole series. We're going to see in one of the subsequent minutes that they have a couple of moments of eye contact where clearly she has something more for him than just you know, okay, he's going to be the guy. It's clearly something more than that. And so I think that that really is set up here and starts to develop here. Um, Joe Johnston, I think does a wonderful job with that shot, reverse shot in the car so that we see reaction shots to each other. We see point of view shots on each other. And yet it's still done with that wide angle. So they're not close ups. There's enough of a context that we actually see something going on in building here. I think it's really well done. So yeah, I
1: think this is that moment. I don't want to totally give up. (laughs) (laughs) Die. <laughs> <laughs> You've been trying, the, Pete. You've the been position trying. that I have <laughs> t- completely cemented myself into the corner, uh, the hill on which I will die. I, I do think I, I think if there is a case to be made, it's probably this minute. It's probably this ineptitude piece. It's probably just his incredible charm at being terrible at this. And I have to shout out to this wonderful performance by uh both Chris Evans and Leander Dini as the puny body because the body language the the way he he his shoulders are you know small shoulders squared off just his his body awareness of his own ineptitude with women and still He's a soldier now like you get this balance this like tightrope that he's walking and, and I think it's really special this whole performance is is really great. She also walks the line wonderfully between being the stoic soldier and you know this this sort of morphing into a romantic ideal uh, and and I think it's I think it's just perfect. It's a cinema moment right it's it is it's a perfect romantic cinema moment.
2: Is. And when he gets to that line where he says the right partner, yeah. right? It's, it's it's not it's not set up. It's not overdone. It's, it's almost a throwaway, but it's done with enough conviction that it's sold to her. She yeah. buys it. Yeah, and that's the key. I think that's the one where she buys
1: it. Well, I think that's really true. And again, to the performative aspect of this, it, it doesn't feel scripted at all. It feels like. Steve is discovering this line almost after he says it, right? It's like this is a thing that he's, a truth that he has known that he is sharing with the world for the first time, that he is also a, a romantic. And this is a person that he feels safe enough to say it with.
2: Yeah, and I, I like the way you phrase it, this is a cinematic moment, because one, one of my positions on this film has always been, I've, I, I like pretty much any Marvel Cinematic universe movie, although I just watched Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, and that that and the Eternals challenge that position very firmly. But (laughs) um
0: Wait, have you seen Thor Love and Thunder yet or no? Not yet. I'm worried. Wait for that one (laughs) to (laughs) challenge.
2: But I, I like them all. I think they're all very entertaining. But this one I think is the best film of the bunch. Um, I, I think, in terms of, of its, its cinematic quality, in terms of the way the story is told, in terms of the, the self consciousness of what the director and the set designers and the scriptwriters are all doing, this is this is a good film. Not just a good superhero film; it's a good film. Uh, well, well, and f- I
1: think you can tell that because we don't get to any of the hand wavy sciencey stuff until minute. Thirty-three in this movie, like they yeah. really hold their their superhero material for setup, and I, I think it's it's certainly one of the most patient of well, the, and- the Marvel films.
0: And Joe Johnston is i mean i i 'm trying to think through all of the directors, but perhaps the the most old school of the entire run of directors that they 've had in the franchise uh, as the one who actually was working on some of those films with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, and kind of has a little bit of those sensibilities that he was bringing into films like the rocketeer and um, and i don't i don 't think there has been any other like I feel like all the other filmmakers really feel like the school of film that grew up on their films. And so I I think there is something to be said for this is a person who kind of came from that family of filmmakers.
2: I mean Johnston Johnston claimed that they didn't use a lens over twenty seven millimeters in shooting this film. I Because he didn't want any long lens close ups. He wanted it to look like a 1940s film. He wanted it to feel like a 1940s film, which is why we have so many two shots or we have people walking into the shot rather than having right that zoom in close up of them. I mean, right. Johnson had a very constant, constant and conscious sense of what this was supposed to look like um and it 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 makes the film it really makes the film
1: yeah if you don't feel walking out of this thing like gene kelly and fred astaire could have walked on screen at any moment then you know he's failed like it really does feel cinematically of the time
2: yeah Yeah. even even the couple of cheesy 3d shots that were you know put in there (laughs) for the trend at the moment that don't work right, right right even with those it's still i think i think it works as a film in some really sophisticated ways.
0: And script-wise, too, because, I mean, we're having this conversation, and as you just said, Pete, it doesn't necessarily feel scripted, but what's great about what we're getting here, uh, not to kind of spoil what's to come, but they're they're doing a great job of creating some moments that will be telegraphed to those points later in the film, you know, the kind of the great setups and payoffs with these moments about the dancing. And so I, I love the way that it, it is kind of getting set up all in this... Uh, brief little conversation that we have here. It's uh, it's well-written, well-crafted.
1: Well, some of the things that, that we've talked about in terms of the setups and payoffs that start with Captain America, The First Avenger, their best payoffs come 17 movies later, right? Like I, the, <laughs> the fact that we get, I could do this all day and, and uh, um, you know, those kinds of things that pay off later. The emotional resonance starts here so
0: effortlessly. Well, so, geez, even the you know, dance. I mean, you know. Even the dance. I mean, oh, that's really the final, uh, final piece there. Yeah. Yeah. I wept.
2: I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not too proud to mention that I wept.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great moment. Such a great moment. Um, before we kind of keep digging in, just talk a little bit about kind of your place in kind of this, this world of comics and how you came into it, writing these books, especially kind of focusing on, uh, kind of the, kind of the historical place of comics and uh, uh in kind of american history
2: yeah you know, i i collected comics as a kid a lot of guys my age right um yeah and i still remember the first comic I ever bought was captain America and the falcon 153 back in like 1973 or something it was like my first one i remember um and about 20 years ago um i stumbled across these comics again and thought these would be things to teach with um and within 10 years, it had gone from maybe I could teach with these to I have, you know, 25 boxes of research materials, an embarrassed wife. And, um, <laughs> all right. Um, j- j- take a number, man. Take a number. <laughs> um, I, I, I study largely American political culture, the Cold War, and um, particularly pop culture of the Cold War, pop political culture of the Cold War. And comic books, particularly superhero comic books, provided a a sort of a wonderful um, uh, door to look at some of those things, at how they play out in the popular realm, particularly from the 1960s on when you have these notions of serial continuity. I mean, if you've got a character like Captain America, who exists in 1941 and exists in 2023... Right, How that character is portrayed during various periods is going to tell you a lot of things about what's going on. And so I've written about Captain America and Iron Man and um, the Justice League and the Justice Society and uh, Nick Fury and the Hulk and all these different characters at, at various points to think about how... Cold War culture, the war on terror, all these things played out in the popular milieu and how they were represented in the superhero books and what that tells us about how we were as a people responding to these things.
1: One of the things that you've uh, you know, that you've, you've talked about and, and I'm curious your perspective on is this, the whole angle around uh, secret identities. I mean, you wrote a book with yeah. that in the title, and we've been talking a bit about how secret identities are handled and the fact that cap himself was a secret identity when he started right he was he was a soldier by day hero and tight pants by you know events and at you know at what point did did the cultural expectation of secret identities change Uh, what's your perspective on how they handle that in in this movie captain america is outed from the beginning um, not necessarily true to his origin No, things have changed. I think that that um, the
2: the secret identity culturally, I think, demonstrated a a uh, a division between a public and private realm. Right? Um, Privately, you can be Steve Rogers, right? Person, but publicly, right? You are this Captain America, this avatar of the American dream. Privately, you're Bruce Wayne. Publicly, you're Batman. Right? Um, When when things get questionable when we start to blur those lines between public and private then that secret identity starts to go away um right stan lee once wrote that that when he created the fantastic four he tried to get rid of the secret identity thing he didn't give them uniforms didn't really give them code names but people didn't want it he said people wrote in said you know love the book thought it was great but i don't understand who these characters are and he had to give them (laughs) right costumes again blue tights yeah yeah. so that they could draw (laughs) the lines um by you know the 1990s everything is you know the the personal is political the public is private and we start to they start to blend and we don't hide those things quite so much anymore um Peter Parker may be a throwback Spider-Man's still a little bit of a throwback right but you know Tony Stark is Iron Man right Captain America is Steve Rogers um You know, we don't they don't hide it anymore. And so I think that this part of this is 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 sort of how what has become public has and private has blurred so much that we don't draw those distinctions quite so much anymore. Um, And we want that personal character to be part of our politics now.
1: Well, it's so interesting the way they've handled, let's just say, jumping Many years forward in our podcast, the way they handle uh, uh, Ronan, right? The character of Ronan, who was a military figure with no with just a code name. And then he took on a secret identity to do bad things, Mm -hmm. thereby connecting, you know, this this sort of nature of his his vengeance and his dark side to having to maintain a secrecy, a sense of secrecy. But that wasn't really the gestalt of of the rest of the
0: Avengers at the time.
2: Right. Yeah. So things have things have changed.
0: It's I mean, it's really interesting. And and looking at the way they did the film, I, I feel like it would have been very difficult for them to kind of create this story where he he kind of is that bumbling soldier by day dropping his rifle on the sergeant's foot and then would put on his costume like they really create this character of Captain America to be this super soldier, but also uh, to, I mean, to sell war bonds and stuff. It becomes this character who's designed to, to kind of help, help kind of sell the war. And it's an interesting uh, way that they adapt from where he was in the comics at the time to, to fit more, something that I feel like feels a little more authentic anyway. I, I like the way that they kind of adapted it for this.
2: I agree. I also, I, I enjoyed that as well because, right, the book was in some ways propaganda. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I mean, they sold war bonds. They sold war stamps. Right. It was joined the Sentinels of Liberty. It was all through the comic book in the 1940s. And so, right, they sort of recognize that there's there's a propaganda aspect to this as well that they put in there. Um, But then they they sort of push that aside and say propaganda is not enough. You've got to be authentic. Um, and it's the authenticity of the combat. He needs to get into combat. He can't just be the dancing soldier in the bad uniform. Um, and I also think it's interesting that he's got that bad uniform when he's the dancing soldier, which is the comic book costume, right? But when he actually goes into battle, right? They adapt the costume to something that's actually more functional. Um, yes. A friend of mine, who's a comic book um, artist, actually a fairly well known comic book artist I went to high school with, um, emailed me about that film when it came out, and he said, I love what they did to the costume. They made it work on film. He said, you could never make that costume work on film, and they showed that, and then they made one that worked.
1: Yeah. As evidenced not only in this movie, but by every prior attempt to make a movie of
0: Captain America. (laughs) I thought (laughs) Matt Salinger pulled it off. (laughs) Well, he certainly didn't have the 70s beach bum vibe. <laughs> yeah, right. <from> <laughs> something
1: about the jeans, short shorts.
0: <laughs> yeah, right, right. And the motorcycle Struggling helmet. Yeah, yeah, right. Oh, so good. Right. Well, let's talk about Steve a little bit. Um, you know, part of the element of this character that we have is he's really, you know, kind of the the, the everyman. He's just kind of this uh, kid from the neighborhood. He's just kind of this, this person who... Uh, I think, is designed to be kind of like, um, you know, what you're the aspirational person that you're wanting to be when you're joining an army, you know, like this person, like I can do this and he, like very eager, excited and authentic and uh, just a good person. I think that's a great foundation. But let's talk about him a little bit, particularly here in this place and and everything that Peggy is seeing, but also kind of in, in comparison with um, the the other the evil side of him the the red skull we certainly have these two characters that we're setting up over like the last uh you know for for the last half hour of the film um we just saw um Red Skull as he was in his lair, and they had found Erskine. And we kind of are getting this sense of this character and this hunt and everything. But I think we're, you know, bouncing back and forth between these two also, because it's giving us the sense of the good and the bad of the story. What are your uh, thoughts on kind of Steve and what they're how they're setting him up as this character, kind of this everyman versus his nemesis?
2: I, th- I think this is also a very important sequence for that as well. And I think next week's going to be even more important because they bounce between the two labs sure. uh, in the next set of minutes, right? Um, and th- we twin him with the Red Skull here. But what's also kind of interesting about it is um, there's, uh, there's sort of an underlying irony. I think, to it. Steve is authentic. I'm just a kid from Brooklyn. But he's not, right? He's about to be shot up with all these chemicals and become this artificially enhanced human being, right? I'm just this force of democracy. I'm just a kid from Brooklyn. No, you're not. You're a super soldier. You are like the only one of your kind. The Red Skull, on the other hand, says that, you know, I am, I'm, I'm a god. I can hold the power of gods in my hand. But the second he tries to do that, like it consumes him, Right. So the hubris of the red skull, right? Um, and his, his vision of himself as being this godlike character is just as, as, as artificial as Steve's vision of himself as being just this authentic kid from Brooklyn. Right. And there's, there's an irony in that juxtaposition there that actually gives strength to this message that the film is conveying of, of how the humble power of democracy can defeat the hubris of fascism um which is what comes out of this whole film and steve pulls it off and i think the very irony of their discussions and their their, their conversation of this actually enhances the message of steve's authenticity right his physicality his presence is artificial but his heart is not and that's when he says, I'm just a kid from Brooklyn, he's not talking about the physical Steve. He's talking about the emotional Steve. He's talking about the hardest steeve, Steve. Um, and, and that that democratic vision that we're just a bunch of humble guys working together, which is enhanced by the constant two shots and the wide angle lenses that, that you know, give you a community feel to the film rather than close ups of. Christian Bale being Batman, right? It's it's a <laughs> it's a different kind of story that's coming through, and so yeah, we get that message from Steve, that authenticity of his his essence, even though the reality of him is, is not nearly as authentic as the message that he sends. It's kind of a it's, it's a very complex set of 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 ideas uh, that the, the the writers and Johnston are putting forth here. I think it's a I think that's what gives part of the, this film its strength.
0: Well, and that's what Erskine sees, right? He sees the heart, the the actual, the the authentic piece that he didn't see in any of the other, like Gilmore Hodge, for example. Certainly doesn't see that in in Gilmore, uh, but but sees that here. And and regardless of what happens with the experiment, and I'm gonna, I, we'll talk about this uh, maybe in the next couple of minutes, but because I'm curious what Erskine is expecting. But um, but as far as like what he what he believes is what is here in, in Steve's heart is the part that will always remain. That's the authentic part. That's the key element that, that will uh, be amplified, I guess you could say, uh, by, uh, by the experiment. Uh, but it will still remain kind of the authentic core. And that's, yeah, that's what we need. That's what he's been looking for all this time. Right. And Erskine actually gives us sort of two different
2: messages of what he thinks he sees, right? One is he tells us that, that the serum takes what is good and makes it better. Right. And you're a good man. So it's going to make you a better person. Right. Right. But the other is it's going to give you power. Right. And if you were a strong man, you would have no respect for it. You would be likely to abuse it. Right. So what I'm give, I want to give it to a weak man because you've never had it. So you will respect it more. And so on the one hand, right. He's saying, no, this is just going to make you better at being you. And the other is, well, no, your personality is going to stop you from abusing what I'm giving you. And so that 's two different sort of visions of what he sees coming out of Steve or why he chooses Steve yeah,
1: well, I think your point about twinning him with Red Skull here is exactly that point right we have We also have this example of what happens with the ugliness at, uh, of of Red Skull and what happens when power is paired with this thing that we don 't at this point quite understand. Uh, But we get to see coming from the ugliness, we're not meant to be connected with that. We're meant to be connected with Steve, the small part of all of us, right? The aspirational part of all of us. They put that all the power behind the ugliest of faces and... We're, I mean, we're supposed to resent that. We're supposed to find distance between that. And that, you know, that makes the emotional connection, I think, that much more sort of visceral.
2: And the film exemplifies or, or specifically addresses the absence of that ugliness at Steve's core, right? Yeah. When they first reveal the red skull, Bucky says to him, you don't have one of those underneath there, do you? <laughs> yeah.
1: Right.
2: right. And it, so he doesn't. Yeah. He doesn't have one of those faces underneath there, right? He's, he's authentic at the core, if not in the right, front, right. at the core.
0: Um, one other thing I wanted to uh, just mention briefly, uh, because we do always like to talk about the timeline and as far as where we are. Uh, just an interesting note, today is June 22nd. This is just eight days after we met Steve on Flag Day. Uh, so it has been a very busy week from going to the expo that evening <laughs> to thrust into this program of uh, seven days of training. And uh, here we are on the eighth day uh, with him already being uh, pushed into the uh, into the experiment, so it is. Oh my worrying.
2: goodness, is it really only eight days? Only yeah, eight it's days. Really
0: only. You know, it's it's one of these things. They they arbitrarily had to kind of create this timeline uh, after all the films, and so they they're squeezing all this stuff in in a timeline that I think is a little rushed. But uh, you know, it is what it is. That's just the way that they had to do it. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah, it is what it is. Um, All right. Well, do either of you have any last comments about this particular minute? Let's get into the lab. All right. Well, we are so close. We do pull up right at the very end of this. Uh, we get to go back to the street in Brooklyn and we see an antique shop here and uh, some mysterious figures. We'll talk about them all a little bit more soon. Um, but I will just mention them by name. Marcella Walton and Vincent Montwell played our two We'll just say that they're bums right now, and then we have Sergio Corvino and Fabrizio Santino as two men standing by a car. Again, we'll bring we'll we'll circle back to these four, but um, otherwise, we're about to go into this uh, antique shop. We're not going to what lab are you talking about, Pete? It's a it's an antique shop. They're I don't shopping. know. I don't even know. I've I've lost my head. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matthew. Um, do you want to tell everybody? Uh, do you have uh, social media that you have people follow, or do you just want to send people to Amazon to check out your books? So they can go to Amazon
1: go? and check out my book. To be the the Costello Literary Universe, is that what we're doing?
0: The
2: Costello Literary Universe. Uh, yeah. No secret identity crisis. Is on Amazon, if you're interested.
0: Right. Outstanding. Excellent. We'll definitely have that link in the show notes uh, for everyone to check out. So check it out. Meanwhile, we will be back tomorrow with another minute uh, and uh, more conversation with Matthew. So until next time, true believers. Get a mean old lady to meet.
1: Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show.